Father, we have, we have read of your word in two different passages. We've read about its stability. We've read of its power. We've read of its authority. We have sung about your word. We have prayed over and from your word. And now we need this word to drive and compel our worship in the next hour. And, and we need this word as well to, to drive our worship in the week ahead. For we want to be worshipers of you through this word, that this word would have a transforming effect and power on our lives. And Father, we come opening this book expectantly for who knows what you will do in our hearts in, in, the, in the time that remains. Who knows how you will change us. For our Father, this may be a time of tremendous transformation for us and, and we want the Spirit to do His work in us in the minutes ahead. So would you change us? And would you give receptivity to our hearts so that we are ready for the change that you will bring? We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. In Luke chapter 18, it says that a ruler questioned Jesus saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Who can be saved? Who can be good? Who, who can do the things in their lives that, that reflect, um, a change and transformation in their lives such that God reckons them and accounts them to be good? Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. And yet, with, with the impossibility of man to be good on his own, he also says, But all things are possible with God. 
God can change and God can transform. And this is the very truth that we have been seeing in Romans 6, 7, and 8, and now in Colossians chapter 3, that that God reaches into the heart of men who cannot change and transform themselves, and He changes them. Just by way of reminder, Colossians chapter 3, it says, You have been raised up. So you couldn't raise yourself up to God or you couldn't raise yourself up to the heavenlies, but, but another has raised you. Another God has reached down and grabbed a hold of you and pulled you up into the heavenlies. Verse 3 of Colossians 3, your life is hidden with Christ. You have been identified with Christ, protected with Christ, kept by Christ. Verse 4, Christ is our life. It's not just something that we talk about. He's not just something we talk about, but, but He is the very reason we live. He is everything about our lives. Verse 4, also, you will be revealed with Him in glory. In other words, when you get to glory, another will reveal you and reveal the, the justification, the, the goodness that has been imputed to you. He will reveal you in glory as a justified man. Verse 10, you who have put on the new self who is being renewed. So you have a new identity in Jesus Christ and that identity is progressively being renewed by another outside of you. God is doing that work. Verse 11, Christ is all. That is, Christ is sufficient for your salvation. He is sufficient for your sanctification. He is sufficient for everything that you need in life. Verse 12, those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved of God. In other words, God again has reached down and chosen you. God has reached down and poured His affection and His love on you. How is a man made good? Only by God. It takes the work of God to, to change us and to make us good. And, and despite the fact, though, that we are good justified by God, declared to be righteous, and progressively being made righteous, the reality is we still have indwelling flesh. We, we still have sin that, that we still wrestle with every day, and we still have the pressure of sin against us. And the question is, how do we get out of that? How do we push back against the flesh? How do we push against sin so that the goodness of God can be increasingly worked through us. Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, that the one way to do that is to mortify the flesh, to, to kill the flesh, to put the flesh to death. But, but Paul doesn't demonstrate for us in Romans 8 how to do that. He calls us to do it, uh, mortify the flesh, but he doesn't explain in that passage how it is that we are to do that. But he does explain in some great detail in Colossians chapter 3 about how we carry out the process of mortification. And so we've been taking a small detour from Romans 8 to Colossians chapter 3 and Lord willing next week be back in Romans chapter 8. Colossians 3 reminding us about how it is that we can mortify the flesh. And what we've been saying is this, that to live in the Spirit is to live aggressively against the flesh. If you are going to be in Christ, and if the Spirit of Christ is going to dwell in you, then you are going to live aggressively against the flesh. Now, how are we going to live against the flesh? Now, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul identifies a number of different ways that we might 
try to fight against the flesh. So in verse 8 of chapter 2, he talks about a worldly philosophy. So there's worldly approaches. You can, you can fight against the flesh by, by worldly perspectives and worldly philosophies and worldly desires. In verse 16, he talks about legalism, that you can pursue a, a course of self-righteousness to, pers- to uh, fight against the flesh. In verse 18, he talks about asceticism and, and mysticism, so that out of sheer willpower, asceticism, or by mysticism, swallowing the magic pill of sanctification, that you can be sanctified and fight against the flesh. But as he identifies at the end of chapter 3, Excuse me, the end of chapter 2 and verse 23, all these things are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It won't do you any good. You can't be made righteous in this way. You can't, you can't be made sanctified in this way. So, so how are we going to fight against the flesh? How are we going to demonstrate the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Well, the Apostle Paul gives us five ingredients in chapter 3, and we've been taking some time to look at these. And just by way of reminder, the first thing that he says in verse 1 is to cultivate a new desire. And if you're following along in the outline, you may notice that I've just tweaked the outline a little bit a little bit from the last couple of weeks just to provide a little bit more clarity and um, to provide just a, a little bit more um, of synthesis and and something that might be a little more memorable for you. Cultivate a new desire. Therefore, he says, verse 1, if you have been raised up with Jesus, with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You, you need to seek something new. You need to, to cultivate a new passion and a new desire. And the, that passion needs to be focused around the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is preeminent throughout this book, but the Apostle Paul reminds us in chapter 1 of Christ's position. So he says, For by Him, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him, so He's the means of creation, and for Him, He's the purpose of creation. He is before all things. That is, He is above all things. He is beyond all things. He is in front of all things. He is preeminent, we might say, above all things. He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. What kind of things is He above and beyond? Verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, he is first. And Paul says in verse 18, the goal is for him also to be realized as being first. And and that's the kind of thing that he's drawing attention to now in chapter 3, verse 1. You need a new affection for Jesus Christ. If, if you want to fight against the flesh, you need, as Thomas Chalmers said, the expulsive power of a new affection. You need something new to motivate you and compel you. You need to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And when you love God in that way, you will be able to push against sin and fight against sin. You need to cultivate a new desire. You need, secondly, to think a new way. You need a renewal of the mind. And he says that in verse 2, set your mind on things above. So cultivate a new desire, but the new desire isn't enough. You need to think in a new kind of way. And your, your thinking needs to change in a couple of ways. 
Your worldview needs to change. The way you process life and the way you look at life needs to change. So the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about the fight against the flesh. And he says the the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What kind of fortresses are we destroying, Paul? We're destroying speculations... And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Those speculations are apologetics or philosophies or or ways that the world thinks about God. Our primary fight in the flesh, or our primary fight rather against the flesh, is against false ideologies and false ways of thinking. The way the way Satan typically entices us is by by false worldviews. And he says, we are taking all those things, 2 Corinthians 10.5, captive to the obedience of Christ. We, we, need to, we need to think about the things that are opposed to Christ in a new way. And the things that are opposed to Christ should be abhorrent to us. And so all the choices that we make about food and entertainment and schedule and work and whether or not we'll have children and how many children we'll have and how we will parent and, and what we will purchase today and where we will go today, all those will be changed and transformed as we seek and set our mind on the things that are above and not the things that are on the earth. Our, our mindset and our worldview will be changed. He also says, not just will our worldview change, but we will think intentionally of Jesus Christ. Our, our mind is drawn to Him, attracted to Him. Notice in verses 1 to 4 how often He talks about Christ. We've been raised with Christ, seeking things above where Christ is. Verse 4, you have died, your life is hidden with Christ. Verse, that's verse 3. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, Christ Christ, Christ, we need Him. We need to focus our attention on Him. So let me just ask a question. When your mind is disengaged, where does it go? So during the course of a day when, when we're at work and we're, we're thinking about the particular task and the things that we're engaged in, our mind is attracted to that, we need to focus on that, give our attention to that. We're thinking about those things. When we're engaged in our conversation with our spouse, I hope you are fully engaged in that conversation with your spouse that, that she's, that she knows that you're paying attention to her. She shouldn't ever hear from you. You seem, she shouldn't ever say to you, you seem really distant today. Where, where are you? Oh, I'm just thinking about Jesus. Well, honey, I need you to think about Jesus, but right now I need you to listen to me. So, but, but when you're not listening to her and not engaged in conversation, when you're not at work and when you're not employed in some other task, where does your mind go? What are the things that captivate your thoughts? And the apostle says we need to think in a new way. We need to be focused on Jesus Christ and have a renewal of the mind. Your mind needs changing. If you want to fight against sin, you need to think in a fresh way. We've also said that we need to put off old sin we need to put off what we were before we became believers in Jesus Christ, before He saved us. And one of the things we will do to put off old sin is that we will identify sin for what it is. We will, we will attribute to sin its, its actual position 
in our lives. And in doing that, we'll do a number of things. One of the things we'll do is we will give sin the name that God has given it. Notice, notice what he says in verses 5 to 8. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Verse 8, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abuse of speech from your tongue. You ever notice how, how we soften all those things? Friends, if we're going to fight against sin, we're going to call anger, anger, and we're not going to call it, well, I'm just disappointed. We're going to call it wrath, not frustration. We're going to call it adultery, not an affair, or not a slip-up. We're going to call it greed, not, well, I'm just struggling a little bit with consumerism. We're going to call it covetousness and not the necessities of living in the 21st century. We're going to call it gluttony and not overeating. We're going to call it drunkenness and not just a little too much. We're going to call it sin that rightly deserves the wrath of God. Not a mistake or or not something, well, it's not that bad. No, it deserves the wrath of God. We're going to call it idolatry. I've worshipped something instead of the Creator and wanted it. Give your sin the name that God has given it if you want to fight against it. Count the cost of engaging in sin. That's verse 6. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. We need reminders that when we engage in sin, we're doing the kinds of things that God will pour out His infinite and eternal wrath against. And my my friends, if, if we really think in those ways, that becomes a massive deterrent to sin. We need to stay away from sin and situations that lead us to sin. So, so he says in verse 7, In them, in those sins you once walked when you were living in them, before you were a believer in other words, but now, verse 8, put them all aside. That's Paul's way of saying, stop it. Don't do that. Don't go there. Stay away from sin and every situation that leads you to it. And you will do that as you hate sin, as you cultivate a a thought about sin, the way God thinks about sin and how He hates it. We also talked about the fact last week that we need to just be ignorant about sin. There are just some things we we should not know about. We need to be uninformed. We we need when when we're in the culture, when we're in the world, when when we're at work and when we're at our kids' sports games and when we go to the recital and when we when we go to the bass hall and when we go to the rodeo and and when we're just going about life and people are talking about things, we ought to just go, huh? Just, I don't know. I don't know about it. I need to be uninformed about those things. And and what's interesting is we're identifying sin. Isn't it interesting how often the Scriptures talk about the fact that, that we can stop? Consider just as an example, not just this passage, but Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, laying aside falsehood. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer. Stop stealing. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from out of your mouth. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Chapter 5, verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Stop. Verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine. Stop it. Stop. And, and, and 
the New Testament emphasis is you, you've been freed from this stuff. You don't have to keep going back to it. You can say, I will not. I am going to stop. So identify sin for what it is. And then another principle underneath that, consider your new position. That's verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Salvation has disarmed the power of sin over us and now we have the ability to starve our sin. We, we don't have to keep going back to it. And, and notice that Paul says we don't engage in sin, verse 9, because you have laid aside the old self. It has already happened. The, the old man that you were prior to Jesus Christ, that's gone. You have a new identity. You have a new position. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But he says, the old self. And then notice what else he says. With its evil practices. What you were, and then not only what you were, but all that stuff you did with it. Paul says, that's been laid aside. You've been fundamentally changed. It's been taken off. You've been freed. A couple of months ago, uh, we went on vacation. We went up to the mountains, and Elizabeth was uh, getting ready for a, a, um, an exercise thing. They call it a ruck event. So they, they take people, and uh, you show up at 9 o'clock at night, which has never been a good time for me to exercise. But anyway, that's when they show up, 9 o'clock at night. And they put backpacks on them, depending on your weight, either 20 or 30 pounds inside that backpack. And then... And then they also have a team weight where you get to, you get to, on a rotating basis, carry, I think, an additional 50 or 80 pounds, like in a sandbag or something, for a particular length of time. And then they march around to do all kinds of crazy things. So they'll march all night long. Starts at 9, they finish at 9 the next morning. And they travel, march, run, hike, like 13 or 18 miles. I can't remember how long she went on that thing. And they go through water and they do push-ups and all kinds of other exercise things. I, it, it just completely ruins a perfectly good night of sleep in my opinion. But anyway, so she wanted to go on this thing and she wanted to prepare for that. So we're up in the mountains and she says, I'm going to, I'm going to, whenever we go hiking in the mountains, I'm going to take my backpack with 20 pounds of weight in it. I'm thinking, well, she's a little girl. And if she can do that, well, I can do that too. And I'm not going out a backpack when she has a backpack, so I strap on 20 or 30 pounds on my back too. And then we headed in the mountains. You know, 20 or 30 pounds is heavier than it sounds. Because we, we typically say, you know, I'm at the weight I want. Well, I could lose like 10 or 20 pounds. And we don't think of it as being that much. Oh, friend. Carried around a little extra 20 or 30 pounds on your back and you get a whole new perspective on it. So we'd finish, we'd hike for a couple hours, come back down and I'd flip that thing off and I'd feel like I'd just levitate. Because <laughs> I just felt so much lighter. And friend, this is exactly what God has done. He has freed you from sin. And that weight and that burden and that heaviness is removed off of you so that you are free. Put off your old sin. You don't have to keep putting on those heavy weights that did nothing but encumber you. There's a fourth principle. 
that Paul gives us, and that's in verses 10 through 14, and that is put on your new righteousness. Put on the righteousness that is correspondent to your sin. And in order to put on your new righteousness, Paul will say that in verse 10 that we need to remember our new identity. Notice what he says in verse 10. And you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So he says in verse 9, you have laid aside the old self. Now verse 10, you have put on the new self. So the old has been taken away and it has been replaced by something new. You have a new position in Jesus Christ. And notice that Paul is not saying put on the new self. But he is pointing to the fact that it has already been put on you. You were dead, but now you have been made alive. And and you are not dead any longer. You don't make yourself alive. You have been put into Jesus Christ and you have put on a new man. You are identified with Jesus Christ. And, And then notice what else is happening. You have put on the new self... And that new self is being renewed. That new self that you have is constantly being changed, transformed, um, made mature in Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ. And notice the goal of this transformation. Notice, and, and, and before I, I scoot on, you have put on the new self that is being renewed Again, it's not a renewal that I am responsible for, but it's a renewal that is happening to me. How? By God, through Christ, and the indwelling of the Spirit. So the Spirit has come to reside within us, and that Spirit is in the process of renewing and changing us. And to what is He renewing us? Notice He says, verse 10, to a true knowledge. Not just to a true knowledge, but into a true knowledge. Now, did you did you notice the passage that we were reading a little bit earlier, 2 Timothy chapter 3? It talks about all this ungodliness that's going on in the world, right? And there are some in the church that have bought into that. And some of those are going into households. We would say probably going into a small group or a home group in the church. And they're captivating weak women who are weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. And those who are doing that are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So they're operating out of the flesh. They're operating out of their Adamic nature. They're not operating out of Jesus Christ. Because if you are in Jesus Christ, he says in Colossians 3.10, you are being renewed to a true knowledge, a true knowledge that you can't get on your own and you won't get by your own nature, your Adamic nature. You're being renewed to a true knowledge. And what is that true knowledge? It is true knowledge, verse 10, according or in proportion to the image of the one who created him. In other words, you are being renewed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, if you go back and remember um, Genesis chapter 1, God creates man and he creates him what? In his image and likeness. That's chapter 1, Genesis. And Genesis 3, sin intrudes. And sin takes the image into which man was created of God 
and it mars it. It it distorts it. It effaces it. It becomes an imperfect image. So we still are image bearers of God. We, We can look at each other and we say, I see something of God in you. But after the fall, that image is twisted, distorted. It's fuzzy. It's, it's looking, like looking in a carnival mirror. And you go, well, I kind of get it. But not the way it was in Genesis 1 and 2. And Paul says that when we come to Jesus Christ that He is renewing us progressively into the image of the One whom we were created to exemplify. He changes us. He transforms us. Our salvation and the gift of the Spirit is making us to look like Him all over again. Oh, friends, to, to put on righteousness, we must remember, first of all, that that we have a new position in Christ and that new position has been granted to us so that we begin to look increasingly more like Jesus Christ. We're saved by Jesus Christ. We've been identified with Jesus Christ. We have been placed into Jesus Christ and we have been called to bear the image of Christ. That's, that's what He is working in us. So remember your new identity. Then also appropriate your new power. That's verse 11. Talking about the renewal, he says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. Notice the last part of the verse. But Christ is all and in all. And what the apostle is pointing out in this verse is that there is no one who is elite in the Christian world and there's no one who is disadvantaged in the world. There, there are no super Christians And there are no impoverished Christians. We all have exactly what we need and we all have the same. So there's no one who can say, as I did for a while, well, I'm just Germanic in background and and we just speak our minds and we just speak the truth and it's just the way it's going to have to be because that's the way I am. No, no, that's not the way it is. You can't say that. And there's no one who can say, well, I'm an alcoholic and I'm the son of an alcoholic and he was the son of another alcoholic and I suppose my child will also be an alcoholic. That's just the way it is. No. No. Well, I'm just a man and and I've never had a a godly father to serve as a model or a role for me and I, I just can't change. Or I'm a woman and you know what the Scriptures say, you know, I'm I'm the weaker vessel and I just can't change. No. That's not what the Scripture says. What the Scripture says is that we have all been given exactly what we need. We all have the same empowerment of Jesus Christ to be transformed into His image. He is, notice verse 11, He is, Christ is all. And He means by that He is all sufficient. He is everything in salvation. So there is no longer any need for any other mediator between God and man. So we don't need angels. He's talked about angels in in, uh, chapter 2. We don't need angels to mediate between us and God. We don't need a priest to mediate between us and God. We have Jesus Christ. He's, He's all we need. He's sufficient for our salvation. 
He is sufficient for every part of our sanctification. So, so legalism, asceticism, and uh, mysticism are all irrelevant. We don't need those things. We have Jesus Christ. He's adequate for our sanctification. He is everything we need for satisfaction. So I don't need to go to the world. I don't need to go to worldly philosophies in order to get satisfaction. He is my all. Which is why Jesus, why Paul said in chapter 1 verse 26, talking about the preaching of the scriptures, he says the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but now has been manifested to the saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of this glory of the mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What we need is to see Jesus Christ and have Him come reside in us. And that is the hope for all of eternity. And that is the hope of glory. And if that is true, 128, we proclaim Him. Why would I preach anything else? Because nothing else can come to reside within me to give me the hope of glory. So we proclaim Him and we admonish every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We preach Christ to every man and then every man is made complete in Him. Christ is all sufficient. And then notice Paul also says not just that He is all sufficient, but He is in all. That is, He is in all in the same way. Now, we have different roles in the body. We have different functions in the body. We have different gifting in the body. But every believer has the same Christ who has saved him. He is placed in the same Christ. And he has the same Spirit who resides within him. And he has the same sonship to the same Father as every other believer in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says... There is therefore now no distinction between Greek and Jew. All racial distinctions, gone. There are no more racial distinctions. There are no more religious distinctions. It's not a matter of circumcised or uncircumcised. There are no cultural distinctions. We're not making distinctions between barbarians and Scythians. We're not making societal distinctions between those who are slaves and those who are free. All that stuff, Paul says has been removed. In Christ, we are all the same. Listen, no one has more of Christ and no one has less than Christ. We all have exactly the same Christ and the same power of Christ to live in us, to change us and transform us. So the way out of sin is to look to Christ who is adequate for us as we fight against sin. If we are impoverished in our lives and if we are overwhelmed and ensnared by sin, it is because we have never really seen or appropriated the power and sufficiency of Christ. You may have heard people have said, well, that's that, all that religious stuff, all that Jesus stuff is fine for you, but it doesn't work for me. And friend, people who say that, the deficiency is not in Christ because Christ is all. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He is in all equally. The deficiency is not in Christ. What does that mean? That means the deficiency must be in me, that I've not appropriated Christ, that I've not lived in Christ. It may be that I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ. It may be that I've never, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, but I've not appropriated His power. It may be that I am, that I am pushing back against Him and I want my sin more than I want Him. 
We are impoverished not because of inadequacy in Christ. He is adequate. If you have not experienced that adequacy, it is either because you are not a believer or because you're not appropriating. And if you're not a believer, might I compel you this morning? You must trust in Jesus Christ. You'll never be adequate on your own. You must trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only means to making you right. Remember the verse that I read right at the very beginning. With man, this is impossible. You can't be righteous on your own. But with God, this becomes possible. God can change you. God can transform you. You must trust in Jesus Christ. And by trusting, I simply mean by that, you must believe that you are a sinner that deserves His wrath and that God has poured out His wrath on Jesus Christ instead. And Jesus Christ paid the penalty of that sin and now has also freed you from that sin so that you can live righteously and do good things. So having faith means I believe that Christ absorbed the penalty and the power of sin on my behalf so that I can be free to live for Him. There's another um, aspect to putting on our new righteousness that's given to us in verses 12 to 14, and that is we must replace our sinful deeds with righteous deeds. So in verses 5 and 8, he talked about particular kinds of sin that we needed to put off. Verse 5, he says we need to consider our, the members of our earthly body as dead, so we need to, to mortify these things. Verse 8, he says, put them all aside. He identified a number of sins. Now in verse 12, corresponding to the putting off of sin, he says we need to put on various kinds of righteousness. In other words, Paul says we need to get rid of the old stuff, but we also need to practice the new stuff. Now, now imagine that you send um, you send your four-year-old child out to play, your four-year-old grandson out to play in the, in the yard, and and it's been uh, moderately wet recently, and uh, and so you send your child out to play, and he finds some really sweet mud puddles, and so he just dives into them with all kinds of vigor, and then he finishes, and he comes back to the house, and he's about to go tearing into the kitchen because he's playing all this mud, and now he's hungry. And you say, wait, 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 stop. I need you to go get out of those old clothes. Now, you wouldn't consider that task completed if all he did was rip off his old clothes and didn't put something fresh on. Now, if they're like one or two, they might try that, but it takes putting off and putting on, doesn't it? Likewise, you wouldn't say, wait, wait, stop, stop, don't, don't, don't go. I need you to go put on something clean. You wouldn't consider that he had obeyed if he just went to his dresser and pulled out new clothes and put them on top of the dirty clothes. <laughs> There's still the filth underneath, right? You've got to do both. You have to put off and then you have to replace with corresponding acts of righteousness. What kinds of things should we correspondingly put on. Well, Paul identifies seven things. These are, in verses 12 to 14, these are are seven actions. They are representative. This isn't a total list. This is kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, as he talks about in Galatians 5, it's not a complete list, but it's representative of the kinds of things that that God works in us and through us. And, And they are interconnected. So like the fruit of the Spirit, these are all things that all believers ought to have. So he doesn't say, well, you can be, as long as you're compassionate and kind and humble, don't really worry about gentleness and patience. 
Or if you are gentle and patient, that's good. But, but don't really worry about bearing with one another or forgiving each other. Those are just kind of extras. And if you get them, great, but it's not really not necessary. No, this is, these are all the kinds of things that all believers will have. Well, what are these things? They, he says, put on a heart of compassion. Let your heart be moved towards tender feelings and compassion over the needs and burdens of others. This is tender mercy. This is affectionate sympathy. Kind of like a, in between worship services when we're over in the ministry building and, and maybe a child falls and a, a child starts crying and, 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 and the child is inundated. You know, six moms go over there. What's happening? There, there are six moms that are, that are in close proximity and say, I have compassion towards that child. They want to minister to the child. He says, put on kindness. That's goodness that is expressed out of compassionate generosity. It's compassion that moves into action. So not just a compassionate heart, but it does something about the compassion that is in the heart. Put on humility, uh, a recognition both of my weakness and God's ability, God's power, God's strength. It is, as one writer has said, the antidote for self-love that poisons relationships. Put on gentleness. That is an obedient submissive to the will of, to, to God and His will. It, it's controlled strength. It's not weakness, but it's strength that has been controlled and pointed in a particular direction. Put on patience. A steadfast attitude that never gives in to suffering and trial. It restrains temper and resentment and revenge when temper and resentment and revenge appear to be justifiable. (laughs) This is just wrong. Remember when our kids were little, certain things would come up and, and one of them particularly had a very finely tuned sense of, of, um, legality and justice. And one of the children would do something and I would just kind of blow it off. And she said, but dad, it's not right. And sometimes when we feel that way, we are impatient. He says, no, put on patience. And a particular way to put on patience is to bear with one another. Not just tolerating tolerating things that are irritants in others, but you're willing to be wronged. You're willing to be sinned against and not get justice. It's the kind of thing that Paul talked about to the Corinthians when they were suing one another. He said, why would you rather not be wronged? 1 Corinthians 6-7. Why not rather be defrauded? It is better to be defrauded than to sue a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, he says, put on forgiveness, forgiving each other, offering a genuine pardon and a genuine remission, wiping the slate clean of sin. And notice that he says um, in verse 13, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. So if you have a complaint against anyone, whatever the complaint is and whoever it is against, he says, be a forgiving kind of person to that person. Forgive them when they come to you uh, in confession and forgive from the heart if they don't come from you, come to you for confession. And so all these things, all seven of these things, are conducted by and embraced by a transformed heart. And they are the opposite of the kinds of things that Paul said to put off in verses 5 and 8. An unredeemed man will produce immorality, anger, and broken relationships. A redeemed man, 
He produces righteousness, patient benevolence, and restored relationships. And then over top of all these seven actions, Paul identifies one overwhelming attitude, and that is put on love. Be controlled by God's love. That's verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love. So that same verb in verse 12, put on, a heart of compassion, that verb is still controlling. Verse 14, he says, put on love. Dress yourself with love. Over everything that you do, one overarching attitude ought to be love. And he's not talking here about love for God. It is because we're loved by God and because we love God that we love others. But but what he's really pointing to is love for others. Notice he says, when you love, when you put on love, it is the perfect bond of unity. It provides unity in the body of Christ. And all these other things that he's been talking about, these are relational things, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Those are relational issues. And so he's talking, when he says love, he's talking about our love for each other. And everything we do ought to be covered, wrapped in, controlled by love. Our love for Christ and our love for other believers will compel us to replace our sinful attitudes, our sinful actions with righteous ones. I think it's worth taking inventory. What are the sins that are causing me to stumble? Where, where am I stumbling today? I need to identify that. Where, where's my trouble spot? And then secondly, what, am I, what do I need to do in order to stop that? Because the scripture says, if I'm in Jesus Christ, I can. So what do I need to do to stop it? And then, and then thirdly, what's the righteous replacement for that? I, I need to not only stop but I need something else from Christ to course that corresponds to the sin that will replace that sin. I need to think a new way, verse 2. I need to put off my old sin, verse 5. I need to put on a new righteousness, verse 10. I need, lastly, to live by the Spirit of Christ's power. I need to live by the Spirit of Christ's power. He's going to tell us, give us three ways to live by the Spirit of Christ's power in verses 15 to 17. The first is to to let Christ's peace control you. That's verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, there's a couple of different kinds of peace of Christ. Um, so there's the peace that comes from justification, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. God's no longer our enemy. He's no longer at war against us. We have peace with Him. We have a truce with Him. We, in fact, have far more than that. We have friendship and fellowship with Him. We have peace with Him. And then, and then corresponding to that, because I have peace with Him, I have the subjective experience of that peace, the kind of peace that Jesus talks about the disciples. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's John 14, 27. So we have the objective peace. This is the reality of our position with Christ. And then we have the subjective experience of that. Paul here is talking about the objective reality. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's why you were called, he says, into one body. That justifying act of Jesus Christ has put you into one body. And and that peace that has united you to God and to each other needs to control your hearts. And so we need to look at our sin and say, 
Is this temptation that I'm facing, is it consistent with the peace that God has given me through Jesus Christ? Did he justify me so that I could do this? And then secondly, if I do this, will I experience peace and contentment with him in my heart? That that will be so helpful to you in identifying um, sin Spurgeon has noted, if there is one darling sin that you would spare, Christ and your soul will never agree. There can be no peace between you and Christ while there is peace between you and sin. Oh friend, let the peace of Christ Rule your heart. That justifying work of Christ that saved you, let that control your heart. Then, secondly, let Christ's Word control you. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let let the Word of Christ take residence in your life such that if someone were to hang a sign on the door of your life, it would say something like, The Bible lives here. You're, you're controlled by Scripture. And, and, and we know, we won't take the time to flesh this out, we know that when, when Paul says, let the, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, that is a parallel thought and an explanation of what he means in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled by the Holy Spirit when we let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. How does the Word of Christ become a permanent resident in you, how does the Word of Christ change you and transform you? Well, you've got to take it in on a daily basis. You need to study it. You need to meditate on it. You need to memorize it. And you need to apply it. And and some of us are just struggling in that area. So I put it in your notes, maybe on the side or something. You just jot down a few ideas. These are some things that I've just found in my own life particularly helpful. How to cultivate reading habits um, of the Scriptures. Start with establishing a time and a place. Where are you going to meet with God and when are you going to meet meet with Him? So I have a time and a place. I know when I get up in the morning, I know where I'm going to go and I know what time I'm going to be there. And I have, I have two routines basically in my life and, and I have plans for when I'm going to meet in both of those routines. I get up in the morning and the alarm goes off and I know exactly where to go. Keep a Bible, a pad, and a pen at that location. So I don't think real clearly in the morning. And so when I get up in the morning, I need everything already in place. And so when I, when I go um, get in my chair, I've got my glass of water that I, that I get, and I set that next to me, and then I can just reach down, and there's my Bible. There are pens, there are highlighters, there are pencils, there are journals, there are devotional books. In case I forget my glasses... I even have a cheap pair of readers sitting there, so I don't even have to get, get back up and go get my glasses from the other room. Everything I need is right there. So just, just make a plan. And then with that, read the Bible systematically and with balance. So you want to read something in the historical books, you want to read something in the Gospels, you want to read something in poetry, you want to read something in the prophets, you want to read something in the Gospels, you want to get to the epistles... So some kind of balance. And, and typically, we just need somebody to help point us in the right direction. So get a Bible reading plan. There are dozens of them. 
And if you don't have one, you can go to the church website, you can go to my blog site, you can find those places, find those Bible reading plans there. Just get a plan and read something every day. And then one thing I found particularly helpful, for every two minutes you read, meditate for one minute. Has anybody ever had the experience, read the Bible, close the Bible, why don't I just read? Anybody have that experience? Okay, well, I have, even if you all haven't, but I have. And one of the things that I have found really helpful is before I close, I just spend some time going back through it, trying to see what are, what's the flow of thought, what, what's the writer trying to get me to understand, what, what's something that's being revealed about God, what, what's something that's being revealed about myself, what's, what's, uh, what's a key passage that I can hold on to, what's a verse or even a phrase that I can take with me through the day. So a lot of times, I won't say every single day, but a lot of times, most times, I'm just grabbing a verse or a phrase and I'm memorizing that for that day. Now, I'm probably not going to remember it in four days, but that day I remember it. And I'm just chewing on that and I'm meditating on it through the day so that so that I get to lunch and I'm, I'm pulling that verse back up and I'm in a conversation with someone. I'll say, oh, I just read something about that this morning. The scriptures say, and there it is. And so just have something that you're going to meditate on through the day and then keep a log of what you read. What's the main idea? What's a revelation about God? What's one verse to think about through the day? And what's one thing I can do? And then pray through that passage. So one of the things I do is I finish reading and then I get on my knees and then I, I pray back through that passage and just spend the first number of minutes while I'm praying just thinking about that passage and reflecting it back. Maybe it's a petition because of something I've seen. Lord, you need to change this in me. Maybe it's a, a word of praise. Maybe it's a thanksgiving. But I'm going to take that passage and in some way pray it back to the Lord. And what's the benefit of doing all that? When you let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, you take it in, then you will have all wisdom, verse 16, to teach You'll be able to, to pour into those who are spiritually ignorant. I don't mean that in a demeaning way. They just don't know. But you can teach them. And you will have all wisdom to admonish one another. You'll have wisdom to counsel, to exhort, to compel. And then you will also have all wisdom to, to sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You'll, you'll have an ability to worship in spirit and truth. The last thing that the Apostle says about living by the Spirit of Christ's power, let His peace control you, let His word control you. Verse 17, let His glory control you. Whatever you do in word or deed, any word you speak, any action you take, that's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? Everything we say and everything we do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does he mean by that? He means do it all for the glory of God. So then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So John Piper asked years ago, he said, can you drink orange juice to the glory of God? Yes. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Let His glory control you. Let His glory animate every discussion. Let His glory compel you. If you were tempted to say, well, Terry, I've tried all this and it just didn't work, then look back up to verse 1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Jesus Christ, if you really are a believer in Jesus Christ, keep seeking the things above. 
Keep working and keep pushing and, and keep putting off sin and keep putting on righteousness and keep pursuing Christ and, and keep thinking new ways. One writer has rightly said, the Christian life has not been found wanting and left untried. It has been found difficult and left untried. It is difficult and we must work. But friend, the Spirit in us is has granted to us everything we need to live a mortified life to sin. How are we going to summarize it? Let's summarize it this way. Simple summary of, sum, of mortification. How do we do that? I can't believe that's my wife's phone. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> now she's mortified, but that's a different kind of word. <laughs> and I'm going to be mortified for drawing attention to it. A uh, simple summary of mortification. And who's calling you? They know we're at church. Actually, I have an idea. But anyway, learn to be satisfied with God. Learn to be satisfied with God. Oh, friend, cultivate a desire for Him. Cultivate a passion for Him. Think big thoughts about God. Often. This is mind renewal. You've got to change the way you think. Never make any excuse for any sin. Address and attack and remove every act of sin. This is the put-off component. You must put off sin. You can put off sin. And putting off sin begins with repentance. Repent of sin. Turn away from sin and confess your sin. That's 1 John 1.9. And then replace every sin with its corresponding righteous act. That's putting on. So renewing our minds, putting off sin, putting on righteousness. Feed yourself from the Word of God at least daily. At least daily. And then pray. Pray for forgiveness, pray for strength, pray to know the mind of God, align your heart to His, and pray as a means of keeping from sin because you cannot pray and commit sin at the same time. Our Father, these are words that we need, and they are hopeful words. Oh, Father, what a great encouragement that not only have you called us to mortify sin, but you have given us what we need so that we can mortify sin. And Father, would you work that in us this day, this week? Might we be transformed by you. Might we be compelled by you. Might we delight in you. Such that we are conformed to you. And being conformed to you, might it produce an even greater delight in you. That produces even more transformation. Oh, Father, would you lead us down that pathway? And would this morning be a pivotal pivotal time in our lives so that once for all, we take action against our sin for the glory of God. And in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.